0: welcome to episode 885 i am talk your weekly fix in all things iron man three sports two guys one show this is i am talk Welcome along to the show, guys. A slightly different introduction today, and that's because Bevan's not here. So, for the first time since the show has begun, I'm going to try to host the whole show myself. So, I'm Coach John Newsome. Welcome along. Special thanks to our patrons uh, a few of those Colin the Convict Bieloski, Jeremy Special Agent Ryan, and Keith the Ice Lord Manning. As I said, it's just me today, so slightly different show, probably will end up being a little bit shorter, and we're gonna have a slightly different theme. Uh, So today's gonna be a bit of a cycling theme. The Tour de France recently finished, and it was awesome. Um, It's not the end of the cycling season. Uh, I do love watching a bit of it, so we're gonna talk a bit about cycling today, as well as some triathlon stuff. So first up, we'll have some news, we'll have a quiz, Uh, we'll have a high five, and then I'm going to interview a guy called Ian Wright from Pyrenees Multisport. I'm going to talk through the different sort of cycling grand tours and the areas that they go through, um, just so you guys can try to get a slightly better gut grasp of what it's like to be riding in France, whether it be the Pyrenees or the Alps, and also sort of touching on where they do the Giro d'Italia, which is the tour of Italy, and the Vuelta, which is the tour of Spain, which is still coming up. So I thought it might be an interesting topic. Hopefully, you guys will enjoy it. We have a wanger over the week, and don't know if we've got any questions and answers at the end. We'll see how we go. But anyway, last weekend in terms of the news, uh, we didn't have any big races, but we had the Outlaw, which is for the Great Britain athletes. Uh, it's a biggie, no pro race, but in terms of the age groupers, Peter Hog- uh, Hogben took it out. In, uh, no, he didn't. He finished in second place. Sam Barley was in first place, and a. Insanely fast time, eight hours, 36, 24. He was in the 30, 34 age group. Swam 102, so not that quick in the water, but then biked a 4.30, and then ran a 2.57. I did look at their course maps, it looks pretty accurate. The bike rider looks maybe a kilometer short, but the run looks uh, pretty bang on, and looking at those swim times, I can't imagine that that's short. Uh, So that's bloody impressive. Eight hours, 36, uh, and he took that out. Second place was Peter Hopkin. He was around about 14 minutes behind, so we had three guys go sub nine hours. On the female side taking it out was Natalie Lawrence in an equally impressive time, nine hours and 35.40. She swam 56, uh, she biked 5.12 and then ran a 3.20, so bloody impressive, she won by quite some margin. Second place was 10 hours and 18. So big one there. So that was happening over in the UK. We had a 70.3 also happening in Maine in the States. Uh, Georgia Prearioni took that out. very quick down river swim. Only took them 16 minutes in the swim. Uh, she took that out by about five minutes. And then on the boys' side, good to see Trevor Foley, who we had on the show either earlier this year or last year, um, take out a win. I think that might be his second win. But anyway, it, he's moped them on the bike uh, his swim is not great by any stretch of the imagination he swam 1627 and that was lo- losing around about two minutes in such a short swim um, but then he drilled it on the bike row 202 and then ran uh, a 111 to win very comfortably by six minutes so good to see trevor foley doing well it's always going to be a bit of a struggle for him if he goes to the big races because he can clearly run and we when we spoke to him he does have a running back background and then based on this he can clearly bike he's still very young he's only 24 but his swim rank on the PTO ratings is 308 his bike is 24 and his run is 15 so good to see him win that means he's had a win he's had a second and a third so far this season um, and he did have a win at 70.3 Waco last year so good on him that was pretty much all we had at the weekend in terms of long course racing. Um, we will talk a little bit about the short course uh, coming up because there was a round in Sunderland at the weekend. But this week, the really big focus is on the PTO Open, which is going to be held in Milwaukee, the PS, it's the US Open. Uh, Milwaukee, famous for beer, Happy Days, the TV show, Alice Cooper frozen custard and Harley Davidson so it's the home of Harley Davidson uh, in terms of the course they're looking at here, it is the sort of standard um, format they're following for the PTO races so 2k swim 80k bike and 18k run so max up to be 100 kilometers long and the critical thing you know we've talked about in the past is it's short enough for them to be able to make a TV production and hopefully keep a captive audience when you start doing iron distance or you know really long stuff it's going to be harder and harder to show Um, so yeah the swim it's a two lap swim which is again standard so they have what they call the Australian exit coming out at the end of uh, lap one don't know if it'll be a wetsuit or not, given the temperatures around the world, I'm assuming it'll be non-wetsuit, and I certainly hope it is, because that is gonna be the opportunity for hopefully the swim to break up a little bit, because the bike, it's 80 kilometers, I had a look at the course yesterday, I had a look on Google Maps as well, it is very straight line riding, Uh, looks to be very flat, dual carriageway, just riding a straight line so it's gonna be pure TTing and we expect to see uh, some pretty decent sized pace lines Hopefully it breaks up a little bit on the in the swim. Uh, it's a seven lap bike course. So more or less doing five kilometres out, five kilometres back. There is a, a tiny little out and back. I guess they're doing that just to make up the distance. It didn't look like it was a climb. Uh, so yeah, dual carriageway. It looked like a, a really nice place to race. Um, sort of along the side of a lake. Should be ex- exceptionally fast. I, I shudder to think how fast they're going to go. You know, if we think... And on a course like Rote, someone like Magnus Ditlev was averaging nearly 45 kilometres an hour. Probably yeah, on this course, God knows how fast you're going to go. Uh, so I think, yeah, it could be a big pace line. Hopefully it breaks up a bit in the swim. Uh, the run is 18 k's. it's 5 laps um, to make up that 18 k. So around about 36 kilometres per lap, or I guess that's one point. miles, something like that, no, sorry, 2.2 miles, something around that. So the boys will be lapping in around about an 11 and a half minutes, and the the women will be around 12 and a half minutes, so you'd certainly think we're going to see a little bit of lapping of the tail enders, hopefully not too much. Probably the thing that I love about this race is the start time. So it's starting at four p 4.15pm local time, so I think that's central central time in the States. For us in New Zealand, works out really well, uh, that's I think 915 in the morning, and uh, when you look at that from a European perspective, it's sort of in the evening over there, so they should really get that good captive audience over there. For the rest of America, it's pretty good, for Australia, it's good, so all in all, uh, time zone, it just pretty much suits everybody. So the boys are racing on Friday night, um, which is going to be a bit unique, and then the females are racing on Saturday night. So for those of the long course athletes who haven't don't come from a, um, a short course background, this afternoon racing will be very foreign. You know, for, for us, you know, and for, for the pros, normally they kick off first before the age group is, uh, so it's an early start, you get out of bed really early, you have your breakfast and you go down and boom, you're into it when you're racing at 4.15 in the afternoon, it's a really different beast. In A, in terms of your arousal levels, you've got to get through the entire day when you're basically probably crapping yourself and really nervous about the race. But also, you know, completely different uh, nutrition plan and getting yourself up to, to race in the evenings. So that's going to be interesting to see how that pans out for everybody. The weather doesn't look like it will be crazy hot. Uh, 20 around about 26 degrees centigrade, so nice racing temperature. So it shouldn't um, cause too much of an issue. Last year in the U.S. Open when it was held in Dallas, it was absolutely Baking hot, uh, and that did impact the lights of Taylor Nip who just crumbled in the heat uh, late late in the run. Uh, the other really good aspect about this event is it's being held in Milwaukee at the same time as the U.S. National Champs for both sprint and Olympic, as far as I can garner. Um, now. I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, in New Zealand for the national champs, it's, n- it's not as big a deal as, as it once was, and the fields are not massive, and it d- doesn't quite carry the same prestige that it used to. In the States, it looks like they get a gigantic field over there. So I had a quick look at last year's results, and they had around about 2,800 entrants in the Olympic distance, uh, around about 2,000 finishes, so obviously a lot of did not starts, and it looked like they had around about the same for the sprint. They've also got youth racing, junior racing as well, so it's a full Friday, Saturday, Sunday of racing. I think Friday is sort of youth racing, Saturday morning um, and during the day is is Olympic, and then Sunday is a sprint distance. So automatically, you've got a crowd of around about sort of 5,000 athletes there, um, plus all their spectators, so fingers crossed we might see the course, you know, fairly well littered with with athletes um, which will be a bit different from what we've seen at some of the other races. Uh, So it should be cool, I think everything's set up for it. Shame we don't have any hills on the bike course but um, it does look like a nice place to go and race. In terms of who's racing, very cool field, very strong field. Not as strong as what we saw at the European Open earlier this year but that being said, this is pretty much like a world championship type field, not everyone's there, but it's still a really, really good field. You have, in terms of the females, you have half of the top 10 there, and then you have uh, six athletes ranked between uh, 10 and 20. So the big guns is uh, likely to be Ashley Gentle, you know, she's... At this distance she's not unbeatable but uh, because we saw anne haug beat her in the, the european open but she's just dominated all the other races so she's seated number one you got paula finlay taylor Nibb will likely open a can of whoop ass on them on the bike uh, and it's just how big a lead she can get When she's done her World Triathlon Series races earlier this year, she's looked really, really good on the run, even though she's just coming back from injury. Um, So she seeded three. Holly Lawrence, Tamara Jewett, if she can bring the form that she had at Oceanside, she could be a real factor. Kat Matthews. Still on the on the comeback trail, and you know, probably not quite her distance. Sky Monch, India Lee, uh, Chelsea Sedaru was down on the list. I believe she's not starting. Um, Jocelyn McCauley and Marjoline Perrier sort of rounds out the the big guns. So yeah, really really strong field. Um, if Ashley Gentles within cooey of anybody coming off the bike, uh, she should take it. But if Tamara Jewett, likewise, is, is near the front, you know, she is somebody that could match Ashley Gentles if it just becomes a, you know, head-to-head um, race. And we saw Tamara Jewett at the European Open; had a fantastic swim. She went for it on the bike, and then wasn't, uh, didn't put in as strong a run as what we've seen her in the past, but she, uh, she is certainly one to watch. On the boys side of it, um, slightly stronger than the females, we've got five of the top 10 and then nine of the athletes ranked 10 to 20, and on both the uh, females, and, I should go back to the females those that aren't racing. Um, we haven't got Anne Haug racing, we haven't got Lucy Charles Barclay, Daniela Reef, and I believe Laura Phillip has pulled out as well, so she was intending to race. Um, in terms of the boys' side of it, as I said. Slightly stronger than the females. Um, they have five of the top ten and then nine of the athletes ranked 10 through 20. Uh, there is a few that have they've been pulling out. So, for example, um, we had, I think, uh, Alistair Brownlee was one of the pullouts, but you got Christian Blumenfeldt who's starting to find his feet back at short course racing and has looked really impressive. So, we'll see if he can transfer that across to you know, mid distance racing. Magnus Ditlev, I think, will be the race favorite and if he uh, lights it up on the bike, it could get very interesting. Sam Long, uh, hopefully he'll be there, could potentially be on daddy duty because their first child is due, I believe, this weekend as well. So he's saying he wants to race, he's hoping to be there, but his mind's in a slightly different place. So maybe, maybe not on Sam Long. I think it's going to be really hard for the likes of Sam Long and Lionel Sanders uh, to, to get back on the wagon when the train's leaving with the likes of Daniel Beckingard and Magnus Ditlev and if Christian Blumenfeld can, can get together probably Aaron Royal as well if they sort of fire up in the swim create some gaps and, and get a Get a pace line going on the bike. It might be pretty tricky to, to hang on. And the big question is going to be, how does Jan Fredino go? You know, he, he did he did did all right uh, at the European Open. Not his usual standards of being just undefeated and and pretty much winning everything he touches. Um, but you'd like to think that he's going to take a step up. Uh, he's always going to be there or thereabouts in the swim. Um, it's you know, it was a bit of a surprise that he wasn't able to keep up on the bike uh, at the European Open, but you'd expect him to take it up a notch and be at the front of the bike, uh, and then it's a case of, you know, who, who he can run with. I'd like to think he could match the likes of Ditlev, um, I don't think any of them will, will match Blumenfeld if they come off the bike together, but yeah, fascinated to see how Jan Fredino races this weekend. Uh, those that are, that are missing, um, Max Newman, who won the European Open, Sam Laidlow, uh, Gustav Eden, who's focusing on short course and Alistair Brownlee's pulled out um, still obviously struggling with with injuries so really really looking forward to it um, hopefully you guys tune in it looks like it's going to be on YouTube um, I assume for Europeans uh, you probably have to tune in via Eurosport or GCN um, flat course I think yeah the danger is we're just going to see a pace line in the boys race females race could have a few different f- dynamics sort of happening. Hopefully maybe Paula Finlay can sort of get a couple of minutes lead and, and be a factor. The swim's gonna be critical. Um, but yeah, really looking forward to it. So so tune into the PTO race this weekend. A few other bits and bobs going on this weekend. You've got a age group Ironman race in Telenin, um and also in Poland in Genia. Um, we've got 70.3 European champs for the pros, which is also at Tallinn in um, Estonia. I know Mike Phillips, a Kiwi, is going to be racing at that. Haven't really looked at who else. Um, another interesting one that I saw, it's just an age group race, but 70.3 in Rwanda um, in Africa be a cool place to go, looks like they had bugger all people race last year, about 155 if the results um, proved correct. But cool place to go and do a race. Um, there is a bunch of other races happening this weekend. We've got the good old Norseman, that's on the the hit list for for so many different people. We've got the Extreme Man in Hungary. Uh, we've got another race in Denmark, so in Scandinavia, the Tour Beach Triathlon, and the Ustl Man in Germany, and the Slovak Man in Slovakia. So, still a good amount of racing happening this weekend. Uh, a few other bits and pieces in the news. Uh, i'm pulling back on a few events Mont blanc that's not going to be happening again next year and that joins the other u.s or north american based races that aren't happening with tulsa and cordelaine uh, and last year at Mont blanc they only had 1066 finishes um, after COVID, and for most other race organisers, I think they'd be pretty happy. Any other long course race in the world, if you're getting over a thousand athletes finishing, um, probably means you're going to have sort of maybe thirteen hundred entering. Um, that's reasonable cash flow, and if you put a seventy point three or half Ironman distance on with that, I struggle to think how hey, you can't make a buck given the entry fees these days. So, real shame that there's going to be a little bit less. Uh, you know. Choices and Tremblant was, was it looked like a really fantastic race, and it's following on a theme that we've seen in the UK as well, where they've had uh, some of their races discontinued. It was Ironman Bolton, and I saw the stats on that the other day, and their numbers have gone down a bit. So it's hard to know, you know, it does seem like we're we're in a bit of a downward trend in terms of overall participation numbers, but at the same time, there's so much more choice. So it might be that we've got. You know, roughly the same number of people, but just spread over so many more events. So yeah, maybe we'll see a little bit of shrinking in the market, good and bad for that, um, but there's still so much choice um, when it comes to long course racing, especially if you want to go and do uh, non-branded race Another bit of news I saw in the last couple of days was Thomas Steiger, who I interviewed for this show not that long ago. Again, it was either this year or last year. He's received a, a ban for possession of a banned substance. It seems like a bit of a weird one. I tried to sort of look into it. The the, the um, Thomas um, very vehemently denies this um, in, a, in a post that he put on Instagram. Translation didn't work perfectly, so it's kind of a little bit hard to know what was going on. One-year ban is a little bit odd um, and it almost sounded to me like he got the ban for for being possession of a banned substance and it sounded like that substance was almost just an aspirin inhaler so it was quite hard to read into it but um, yeah check it out if you want to there was an article on, K, uh, not on K226 on try 247 as well on that. So that's all the sort of long course news from last week. We did have a World Triathlon Series race in Sunderland in the UK. First time they've had an event there. It looked like a pretty cool little venue. The French invaded and absolutely smoked everybody over there. Uh, So it was a sprint distance race. Pierre Lacour won a sprint. Um, over his countryman, Leo Bergier and it was a great sprint uh, coming into the final part of the run. They also had Hayden Wild with them, and earlier on, you just saw Hayden Wild was going to annihilate this. He sort of pulled away, but he was having a rough old day, so to his credit, Has a rough day, still managed to finish in third place, but disappointing because that will impact his overall series rankings. He now does lead the World Triathlon series, um, but I think for him to win the series, he's probably gonna have to beat Alex Yee again somewhere along the way. Um, At the grand final, they have bonus points, so that's the place where you really want to do it. Next up is going to be the Paris uh, test event, and uh, pretty much everybody's gonna be there. So good on the Frenchies for coming in and invading the boys' race, and they did a similar deal and if not more on the female side because they finished in first, second and fourth on the female side of it. Cassandra Beaugrand did really well she just uh, smoked it on the run and won the race pretty convincing over her countrywoman Emma Lombardi and then Leonie Perio couldn't quite make it uh, a French trifecta she was only five seconds off third place so first second and fourth and just to round out the weekend just to rub the salt in the wounds the frenchies decided to go and win the mixed team relay as well so um yeah it was good 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 watch Uh, go check it out on uh, triathlon TV. it's going to be interesting to see that there's no world triathlon series race in the uk next year um so hopefully something gets resurrected because the UK, uh, you know, it's such a powerhouse of short course racing and long course racing. Um, for them to not be able to justify hosting an event is is a real blow for our sport. Again, there was an article on try two four seven about this. Um, definitely worth a read. The they interviewed the um, I think he was is the, the CEO I think of British Triathlon, and they just could not justify it. It, it, it sounded like it's costing them. 1.5 million pounds to be able to put on that event. So pretty staggering, you know. There's a lot of prize money to be paid out. There's a lot of hosting fees and, and so much that goes on when you're putting on a World Triathlon Series race. But you know that's uh, that's big money. So hopefully it will get replaced with an equally cool race somewhere else in the world. On to my quiz question for the week. Um, we're going to move on to a little bit of a theme for the rest of the show on cycling because fantastic sport to watch, um, especially if you're doing plenty of indoor trainer sessions. The season is far from over, there's some good stuff coming up, but we have just finished the Tour de France and it was an epic battle until the last couple of stages when we had the blowout, as most of you will have seen. But most of you should easily be able to name, hopefully the top two, because it was a two horse race in the Tour de France. But quit this week's question, who finished third in this year's Tour de France? Who finished third And this year's Males Tour de France. The females race has just finished, uh, I think it was yesterday. Uh, I'm gonna finish off watching that on the trainer in the next couple of days, because the weather's gonna turn to custard down here. So yeah, who finished third in this year's Tour de France? One, two, three, four, high five! probably didn't hit that with the same vigour that Bevan does but anyway we've got a high five coming up and it's uh, more focused on cycling so Tour de France is what everybody watches but if you that's all you watch you're missing out on a lot of awesome cycling so the Grand Tours are what most people sort of get engaged with Tour de France the two other Grand Tours you have is the Giro d'Italia which is a tour of Italy normally around sort of May June time and it was a fantastic edition this year and then the other Grand Tour is the the Vuelta which is a Tour of Spain so all those races are three weeks long usually 20 or 21 stages Um, usually have two rest days in there as well Um, but outside of that there's so much cycling on but the big ones that are the the, the next most prestigious to go and win is what's called the Monuments. So they have uh, five monuments, so it fits in perfectly into a high five, at least for the boys they have five. So thankfully we're now starting starting to get some some female um, monuments. So since the early 2000s, um, some of the classics have started to add them, um, a part of the UCI Women's World Tour. They're often held on the same day or the same weekend as the men's races, so three of the monuments, have equivalent races so the Tour of Flanders for the woman was first held in 2004 Liege-Baston-Liege Femmes was first held in 2017 and Paris-Roubaix was first held in 2021 they do have a women's version of the Milan-San Remo, which is named the Primavera Rosa. Um, that started in 1999, but was cancelled after 2005. Um, and their other major races include La Flèche Wallonne, feminine, um, the women's Amstel Gold Race, first held in 2001, and the Strada Bianchi Donna, first held in 2015. So, as I said, there's five um, monuments, and these are the races that the they're all one-day races. They're typically really long, so the stages. not the stages, the race is itself much longer than what you'll get in a Tour de France stage. So it really is a sort of a war of attrition. Um, And they're spread through, they're not really spread through the season fantastically because four of them are sort of uh, you know spring classics. The first one that comes up is in Italy, the Milan San Remo. It's the first major classic of the year. Its name is La Primavera for the spring because it's held usually in late March. These races have been going on a long, long time. This one, uh, the Milan San Remo, was first run in 1907. Um, And the Milan San Remo is sort of considered a bit more of a sprinters race. Um, It's really long, around about 300 kilometers in distance. Um, It's mostly flat along the coast, um, but they do have a couple of punchy climbs towards the end, and so often it stays together and then just goes Ballistic on uh, the few climbs, and the sprinters have to hang on for dear life, and often they do, but not always. You sometimes get a few that do do get away. So number one for this week's high five is the Milan-San Remo as the first of the monuments. Next one is in Belgium. It's the Tour of Flanders or the Ronde, the, the Ronde van Vlaanderen um, in Dutch, in the Flemish area of uh, Belgium. It's the first of the cobbled classics. So hopefully you guys will have seen. People riding over cobbles. And what you've got to appreciate the cobbles are not smooth pavers, they are big chunky stones from Roman times and it will shake the crap out of you. So the Tour of Flanders is run the first Sunday of April. It was first held in the 1913, making it the youngest of the five monuments um, and it's sort of famous for its narrow short hills in the, the Ardennes Ardenne area usually steep and often cobbled um, so it really forces the best riders to to fight for space and you'll get these lead outs trying to get go into those climbs because what often can happen is you might have an, uh, a right of sort of fall off and it just holds up the whole group. So you get this massive fight to, to try to get to the, the climbs first and then you'll see uh, all sorts of attacks um, as you get onto the climbs. The next one in the high five for the monuments is Bay which is I would argue probably um the most famous. It's called the Clean the Queen of the Classics or Le L'Enfant de Nord, the Hell of the North. Uh, it's traditionally raced one week after the Tour of Flanders and is the last of the cobbled races. It was first organized in eighteen ninety-six. Uh, and the, the difference with this race and what makes it unique are the the multiple um sections of co- cobbles or they call them pave and it's just brutal so you sort of have a section where it's nice and smooth and then you go into this that cobbled area in springtime it can be can be dusty but can equally it can be wet and muddy and there's just crashes all over the place there's broken bikes all over the place there's punctures so again positioning is absolutely critical in that race um, and what's also unique about this one is it finishes on a concrete velodrome uh, so you ride in, and I think you do like a lap and a half of the track. Um, so, and it can come down to a sprint finish. Often you get guys coming in alone, but you'll you'll equally often have little groups of maybe two, three, four, five coming in, and then it becomes a real standoff um, in the velodrome to to sprint to the finish. And the athletes, when they finish this race, they're just covered in dirt. Um, but definitely, Perer Bay. If you win one single race i think most cyclists would say that was going to be the one you want to take out in terms of a one-day classic next up you have the liege baston liege held in late april le doyen is the oldest of the classics and it's the last of the ones held in the ardennes it's usually the last of the spring races as well it was first organized in 1892, as an amateur event, a profession, professional event followed in 1894, uh, so it's a long and arduous race, um, lots and lots of climbs in the Ardennes, and an uphill finish in the industrial suburbs of Liege. So favoring usually favours uh, sort of punchy riders, uh, and sometimes you get some of the, the tour riders do quite well in it as well, but a really punchy finish, so that's Liege, best on Liege. And then the fifth one is the Giro de, de Lombardia um, so that, that's the autumn classic all the other ones are sort of held as spring classics um, the autumn classic it's the the race of the falling leaves is held in October or late September initially organized as Milano to Milano in 1905 it was called the change to the Giro de, de Lombardi in 1907 and in Lombardia in 20 Twelve. Um, it is notable for its hilly and varied courses around Como Lake with its finish, a flat finish in Bergamo or sometimes a hilly finish in Como. Um, so that is the final one. It was, its date is usually end of September, one week after the World Championships. So those are, it's a high five for the cobbled classics in cycling, Milan-San Remo, Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix, Liege-Bastogne-Liège and Giro Lombardia. Uh, If you want to watch some of this stuff, um, my advice would be go get yourself a subscription to GCN Plus and you can go on there and you'll be able to go back and, and watch some of these races. It'll be a fantastic thing to do over your sort of winter time when maybe you're spending more time on the trainer or I know a lot of you guys probably spend a lot of time on the trainer during summer as well. So go check them out. Righto guys, a little bit of music interlude there. Next up, we have got an interview. It is with Ian Wright from Pyrenees Multisport. Ian has been involved in hosting bike tours and triathlon groups uh, for many a year. I first met him, I think it was maybe 2007 or 2009, doing our first European epic camp. Um, we were going through the Pyrenees, and fair to say, I wasn't quite as organized as what I am these days, and Ian certainly uh, helped save our bacon on that one. Uh, they do fantastic tours. We use them every year when we go over there, we've done uh, several camps in the Alps, uh, the Pyrenees in Italy, and we've got Ian helping us out next year with our Alpe d'Huez camp. So we're gonna talk a little bit about the different areas of France and Europe for cycling, where they do the grand tours, so uh, settle down and enjoy it. Okay, team. Well, the Tour de France recently finished, and uh, I think most triathletes probably at least taken some part of it. Some taken more than others. Uh, so, you know, the, the half-hour highlights show you a certain amount of it, but um, when you watch the full stage stuff, it's um, yeah, it's a whole other world. And we had a pretty amazing tour up until. Well, it must be about stage 18. Um, so I thought what would be really cool is to discuss uh, the different areas of France in terms of um, you know how they differ for the for the mountains and maybe contrast that a little bit because we had a fantastic Giro d'Italia as well, um, which is a tour of Italy uh, that was back in sort of May and June, and then we'll have the uh, the Vuelta, which is a tour of Spain, um, which comes up later in the year as well. And I thought uh, I've ridden in a few of those areas, but I would certainly not classify myself as an expert. Um, Somebody who has spent a lot of years over there is uh, Ian from Pyrenees Multisport, um, and they run camps. We're going to hear about that, but uh, he knows the area a lot better than I, so I thought it'd be good to get him on. So welcome back onto the show, Ian.
1: Yep, hi. It's good to be back. It's been a while, but uh Yeah.
0: Yeah, no, we're looking forward to next year. We're getting, uh, going yeah, into that, the Alps next year with with uh, Tour de France, um, not Tour de France, with our to d'Huez camp. And it was, uh, I was actually just looking, it was literally yesterday I was uh, on Strava because I have to auto-correct all my bloody run files on Strava um, because my barometers are blown up on my watch and I just saw one of Cam Worth's rides pop up and it had a, uh a, it had him getting a KOM somewhere near Andorra. And I thought, oh, that that must be pretty hard to get a KOM near Andorra because that's where a lot of the pro cyclists went. And I sort of had a quick look at the climb, and I'd actually done the climb, and I think I'd done it in almost double the time that the top guys did it. It was like guys yeah. like Egan Bernal and Carapaz and stuff on there. Um, but it was a day we rode 210 kilometers from Andorra to a place called Prades, and this is in the... yes. Oh, <laughs> Was, yeah, I remember it. He remembers <laughs> yeah, it. Was a, we uh out the door and thunderstorms started, and and, pouring um, down all day. Oh, it was horrendous. We go, we're going over some insanely high pass. I think it went to like two and a half thousand meters, and half the camp got in the van. And a couple of us sort of carried on <laughs> and were shivering and freezing. But by the time we got to the bottom, it started to clear up. And yeah, two two thousand two hundred and ten kilometers and uh, yeah. over four thousand meters of elevation. It was a big day. And then we stupidly got off the bike and just. Decided to do seven by one k running, um, and that was it was a pretty solid day. So anyway, that was uh, we'll, we'll sort of get into that stuff later on. Firstly, I thought we'd start with the Pyrenees because that's your area of speciality. So maybe first up, tell us you know for, for people that don't know much about the geography of France, you know um, where the Pyrenees are and and sort of what the the geography of the area is like.
1: So the Pyrenees is a mountain range splitting France and Spain. So it's down the southwest of um, of France. Uh, It stretches from the Atlantic all the way down to the Mediterranean. So it's quite a long mountain range, but not too wide. So at its most, it's about 100 kilometers wide between France and Spain. The majority of the roads and climbing and all the famous climbs are on the French side. The Spanish side is pretty desolate as it compared to with the roads and the, the, um, the actual known climbs. Uh, you've got the Basque country on the Atlantic side for this, the Spanish climbs, and you've got Catalonia, Girona, etc. down on the South side. But uh, the majority of the climbs are on the French and that's what the Tour de France and made it makes it famous for.
0: Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll talk about the Alps later on, but you, you hear the commentators on the Tour de France sort of describing the climbs are a little bit different between the, the Alps and the Pyrenees. So, you know, if for Joe Bloggs, thinking of going and doing some of the, the Pyrenean climbs, how, how do they sort of differ from, from the Alps?
1: I think the biggest difference is the Pyrenean climbs are a lot closer together, and they're also slightly steeper than the Alps. So... A lot of the Alps roads are major passes where they're quite large roads. So you you can't make them too steep or the the trucks and the cars, et cetera, can't get over. But in the Pyrenees, they're very, they're much smaller roads. They're slightly steeper. I won't say they're hugely steep, especially compared to the Dolomites, but um, they're much closer together. So you'll come off one climb and straight into the next climb, where in the Alps, you'll come off one climb and maybe have. 20, 30 kilometres before the next climb. So you have a bit of a rest. So, uh, and, and supposedly, I don't know with all the climate change, etc. but it's a lot warmer in the Pyrenees than it is in the Alps. But on my experience, um, they're very, very similar. It just depends on what time of year you go and what particular, if the sun's out on a particular day. So,
0: Yeah, I remember one, again, on that last camp, we rolled into... I think it was, we rolled into Lords, and we were coming off, I think it mm. might've been the ass band and you're going down. It was like a flipping hairdryer. By the time you got to the bottom, it was nearly, uh, I think it was nearly 40 degrees. So yeah, yeah it was toasty. Um, in terms of why the hell are there so many roads straight there? Because um, you, know, you go climbing on some of them, there's not that much traffic um, and they're not all ski resorts, but is there a reason why there's just so many roads all through there?
1: Uh, I don't know, really. I mean, a lot... Say one of our tours, which is the Raid Pyrenean, is basically a tour that goes from the Atlantic to the Mediterranean. But all the roads are very close to the Spanish border. And that's the whole point of it. You start as close to the Spanish border as you can and finish down on the Mediterranean as close. And the roads near enough follow or sometimes crisscross the Spanish border. So whether that in history time, I'm not sure they just had roads to connect the two countries but um and there's a lot of uh, out and back roads to various villages that you think why are they living up here but again it must have been from the older uh, you know farming days and protection etc but they have just tarmac those roads and the tarmac i must say is absolutely perfect yeah. um it, it's yeah it's an ideal <laughs> ideal for cycling
0: yeah um and in terms of the, the the big climbs in the Pyrenees that we, we sort of see in the, the Tour de France, you know, um, what, what are the main ones that they, they generally include, you know, more often than not?
1: So you've always got the big hit of the Tourmalet, which they sort of now um swap around with the port de balles the port de balles was just an out and back climb when we arrived here in france but they suddenly tarmacked the other side of the port de balles and that's the second sort of big hc climb in the area so they alternate the Tourmalet, port de balles and then of course you got the Col de bisque um which attached to the Col de de um they did the marie blanc this year um Watch other ones. Uh, it's just uh, in my little, just in my region at the moment, we've got a Mente, Cauda called a Portion. All of these are sort of major fi- famous climbs, all sort of Category 1 climbs. Um, it's just a bunch of them.
0: And um, in terms of that categorization that you talked about there, so cat- you've, in Tour de France, your all category, Category one, two, three, and I think it goes down to 4, um, how do they sort of work that out? Is it is it a gradient as well as elevation or is there some um magical formula that they use? Um,
1: yeah. I mean, everybody knows the old days, it was what gear you could climb your climb the coal in your yeah. car and the old cars, you know, one, two, and three. And uh, <laughs> the tourmalade was a horse category because they didn't have cars that could get over it at the time. But um, now I think, they have their own classification, so the Parasort is always a Category 1, yeah. but another climb we have close to us is the Col d'Azur, which is yeah. a Category 2, but if it's, cl- if it's right at the beginning of a stage, then it could be a Category 3. If right. it's right at the end of the stage, it might be a Category 2, it just dependence on where they put it in the stage, Yeah. so uh, it's it changes from year on year. But the major climbs are always they stick to their own categories, which is HC one two.
0: Yeah. Um. And in terms of yeah, you know, we did we didn't do the Raid Pyrenees, which you talk about. You know that goes from. Um, and you've got your Sont Coles when there's Raid Pyrenees. We kind of made our own route through. We did, um, mm-hmm. we went from Biarritz to, I can't remember the name, we sort of went to Prades and then beyond that. So we did do a, yeah. a line straight through the Pyrenees. Um, and it does vary quite a bit. We did pop into Spain a little bit and went through Andorra yeah. as well. Um, and so you you talked there about, you know, the ones, uh, and I always think they're the famous ones as well, and Marie Blanc, the Obese and ones like that. But, man, we went over some um, some really different climbs, especially when we got more down to the southern areas. So um, outside of those famous climbs, um, have you got any sort of particular favourites or particular little areas that, that you really like the look of and, and perhaps uh, not as well trodden and, and perhaps a little bit quieter as well?
1: Well, you sort of head down past saint Giron. So uh, this is one of the, the final towns in the high Pyrenees. Uh, in the Ariège, and you go over the Col Port, and past that you're you're sort of getting onto a big plateau, and there's various smaller climbs: um, the Marmer, the the Perimoyen, which is what I think you went across uh, after Andorra, oh. and the Col de The Col de shocks a lot of our riders because it's right at the end of the week. Um, they've all saw the Tour Malay or the Orbisque, but they never spot the Col de Jau which is also 19 kilometers long and a HC. And uh, it's sort of the penultimate climb of the whole tour. But it's it's the type of climb where you're coming out of the real mountains, as I call it. And at the top, you suddenly descend into the Mediterranean. So you've got different plants, different smells. Mm. You feel the heat, the heat coming off up the tarmac. So that's one of the, the nicest climbs, just because of the the total change in, in from what you rode up on to what you descend down to, and that descends down into Prad, where you were um, mm. a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah, it was beautiful down there. I remember on the last day of that camp we went. It might have been the Col Col de I think. I can't remember, but it was, uh, yeah, it was beautiful and and a lot quieter, and I think that's what some people need to realise, and this will become more evident as we talk about the Alps and and a little bit about the Dolomites. You know, when they go through in the Tour de France, it's all happy days, you know, the road's closed and so on, but some of the the climbs um, uh, are reasonably, you know, moderately busy with traffic, aren't they?
1: Yeah, I mean, the Pyrenees is... Yeah, I would say on the whole of it, it's down the bottom with yeah. quietness. Uh, we have a, a couple of riders here this week, and they went out on a 110 kilometer ride and saw five cars. Yeah, um, and, and we're starting the holiday season now. You know, so uh, five cars here where yeah, yeah, you hit the 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 Alps or the Dolomites, and it's a little busier.
0: Yeah, totally. We'll sort of go into that. So if you had uh you know your top uh, top two or three climbs that you like in the in the Pyrenees, what would they be?
1: Oh, well, the first has to be the Port de Ballas. It's it's on our doorstep. It's uh it's just such a quiet, tough climb that just changes all the way through it, the whole 19 kilometers. Um then we have a, a little climb, which is an out-and-back that used to just be a dirt track called Hospice de France. Um, <laughs> it's French goes,
0: hospital, yeah. <laughs>
1: it's, uh, it's basically just, a, yeah, it used to be um, like a, an old hospital at the top there, but it's now turned into a nice cafe bar. So it's only, it's halfway up the Super Bagnier, which is in Luchon, um, but that's a climb that rarely people do but it just gets steeper and steeper and steeper up to 20% towards the end. Um, And then you have a quick, quick Coke and then the nice descent down. And then you can choose whether you want to do super bannier as well. And super bannier is another 17 kilometer climb. So uh, these are big, big climbs um, that not many people know about.
0: Mm, Absolutely. No, those quiet ones are awesome. You do want to, Tick the big ones off, you know, you really want to go up the Tourmalet, Um, But those other climbs, from a enjoyment and quietness perspective there, they're awesome. And one other thing that you will find on, on a lot of these climbs, almost all the big ones, they've always got some sort of restaurant or cafe at the top and you can get crepes and things like that. So you do get a, get a reward at the top there. If we, um, if we think about the, the Vuelta um, and the sort of climbs they do there, I don't follow the Vuelta as much. Um, it just, I don't know, it just doesn't resonate quite as much with me. But mm. do they generally stick to the, um, it's obviously the of Spain, so they stay in Spain um, for the most part, but are they normally, the, the climbs that they do and people are going to see when that kicks off, is that more the, just the Spanish side of the Pyrenees or do they go elsewhere in Spain as well for climbing?
1: No, I mean, yeah, a lot of the climbs I don't even, I've never heard of. Most of uh, Spain is such a big country. But when they do come to the Pyrenees, they will come across the border. So the Portillon, um, you'll climb from the Spanish side, but down into France. Uh, This year, they're actually, um, I think they're doing the Tourmalet. So they'll be on the Tourmalet at the end of August, I think. So uh, they do come in. It's like the Tour de France where they start off in Spain or they start off in Italy. Um, the, the Vuelta will come into into France and do some of the larger climbs yeah. because they, they don't have those size climbs in in Spain.
0: It just doesn't... Um, it's all, When I watch the Vuelta, it does seem, as you said before, it's pretty arid in terms of a lot of the, yeah. the climbs they do on the Spanish side. And because I guess it's not in the holiday period, it just doesn't have that same level of uh, spectators does
1: it no and and a lot of the roads are on major highways so and they're close to spectators you know they're on motorways or yeah um payages near enough Uh, and i think that's just to get because the distances seem a lot longer so it's just to get them from a to b more quickly to get to these climbs
0: yeah. Um, okay. Let's let's have a look at the the Alps. Um, now, the Alps is a bloody big area. Maybe just explain to people where it goes, and because it, you know it does cross a few different countries. So you know, give us a bit of a geography lesson on 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 uh, the Alps area.
1: Yeah. Well, again, the Alps. We uh, sort of just stick to the the French side, but we go all the way from uh, Switzerland all the way down to Nice. Um, totally different areas or geography as well so uh, the high mountains just below switzerland are are just phenomenal and if you go into switzerland which we haven't done a huge amount there but it's just stunning um, and just different heights so with the pyrenees as as you mentioned in andorra the highest there is 2400 meters but um, when you start going to switzerland and the high alps in the in france you know you're above 2500 meters um, a lot of the climbs are just in that region, but you're also starting off slightly higher as well. And then you drop down to the um, the Alps Maritime, which is just above Nice. And they're all the sort of famous climbs that uh, like Lance Armstrong and all those did. and that's why his, his bikes called what it was, the Madon and uh, it's, it's just stunning. And they're all coming up from the coast. So they're slightly lower in elevation, but um, probably the same amount of climbing meters because you're starting off at a lower elevation.
0: Um, and over there, you know, um, I've been in that area and I think, yeah, probably the number one thing, it's quite a bit busier, isn't it, in terms of the the roads and the, and the traffic on the roads?
1: Yeah, it's... Um... The, the Alps is probably the second busiest out of them all. And uh, majority, we ride our bikes across the Alps, but then you get all the motorbike clubs riding their tours across the Alps. And then you get the car clubs. And of course, then the camping cars, the, the tourists, and they're all trying to go over exactly the same climbs. Mm-hmm. Um, the only the the only good thing about it is all the kilometer markers because we haven't mentioned that. But most of these large climbs have kilometer markers with a little cyclist symbol on, and that will tell you what percentage the next kilometer is going to be, what height you are. So when all these motorbikes and cars do rush past, you know, you just point to the sign and say, "These climbs are really for us."
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, and when when I say this traffic, it's it's nothing to get too too stressed about. It's just as Ian said when you're in the Pyrenees you can be biking along for long periods of time and not have a single car come past you um and and this is route planning is really really important you know because if you are in the Alps you know if um you go along some of the main roads you know between the climbs then that can be busy but there's more often than not um there's some side roads you can be going down and then if you you go on camps like the Pyrenees multi-sport guys run you know they're going to know those those different side roads you can take and some of the quieter routes um that might connect a couple of the big climbs because um yeah if you're on some of those main roads they can get fairly busy um now in terms of um it, it's it's a busier place um i guess a little bit on the road but also that's there's um the towns seem to be bigger and uh, um, i imagine the alps are more expensive than the pyrenees
1: um yeah to a point i think the alps and the pyrenees are sort of similar that the towns as you say are much bigger and they tend to be large ski towns so purely because they are ski towns they will charge a lot more for their their the lunches um it's easier to get snack lunches in the pyrenees where in the alps it tends to be you know a three course menu de jour all the rest of it so we have to select um decent places so you, because in 120, 140K K day, you don't want to be stopped for two or three hours waiting for lunch. Um, mm. So you have to select the right places. And uh, But they're, they're very pretty. I must say that the difference between the Alps and the Pyrenees the, in the ski towns, the ski towns are very, very attractive compared to the ski towns in the Pyrenees. We we have yet to catch up to places like Morzine and... Uh, Val Valdezere, um, the Tourmalay and Lamangi are, yeah, stuck back in the sixties. But they are getting there. They are, uh, they're getting there.
0: um and when we sort of talk about, you know, the famous climbs in the Pyrenees, you know, there's um, there's those few hand- handful that are, that are really famous, and then they obviously do lots of other climbs. In the Alps, it's going to be a little bit harder to pick out the the big ones. You know, you have uh, Alpe d'Huez, which they didn't go up this year. Um, you mm. have the, you know, the Galibier, which I, also, don't think they went over this year, um, but there's so many others. But so, so for you, you know, outside of say the Galibier and um, and Alpe d'Huez, um, what are some of the big big names people look out for, and perhaps some of the ones that you particularly like that perhaps aren't quite as well known?
1: Well, the one beautiful climb is uh, one of the first we do on my, on day one of one of our tours is the Col de Rumaz. Um, that's spectacular again it's probably at 16k long Um, it's at least a category one hc but the views straight over um, to the high mountains of uh, mont blanc are just spectacular so that's on our our day one of our tour the corne de Rosalon again it's just fantastic i think i think you guys went up there with the lake um it's it's just it's the scenery the the high scenery that that's just beautiful um, and then um val d'Isère, the, the uh, Isaran, the col de yeah. um, normally we split that up um, you 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 rode it from the side we normally go down and that's what 60k ascent it
0: was a long way it was a long <laughs> i think the climb was about 40k of actual yeah you know, it was a bit, bit of valley but uh yeah that was a long climb
1: and it's so high, two thousand seven hundred. And this, we, we've just been up it two weeks ago, and the snow was so thick up there. But the sun was out; it was just, it was just fantastic. And then I think my favourite climb in the Alps is the Col de la Bonette, um, which is the highest paved road in Europe. Uh, main it was actually made the highest paved road just for the tour de france okay. so they have a they have a like a, a looped road at the top of the peak just to get that um, that meterage that elevation yeah. but um it, the history up there it's a big second world war um, um sort of outpost so still up there are huge tunnels and machine gun posts and of course the graveyards and everything else but it, it's just you cycle up there past this and it just takes away all the pain um you're at 2800 meters uh it, it's just a big smile across your face until you turn the corner and then the wind nearly takes you off your bike but oh, uh nice. it's just it's just a beautiful climb
0: is, is that one uh up and down out and back or is that uh, no no it's a, a pass,
1: pass so yeah it, it, it drops down through this uh another huge um like a, a napoleon barracks Again, on a bike, you don't see any of this, you just fly past. But, um, being support crew for a few years, you know, you actually stop and read some of this uh information and then you try and relay that to the cyclists before they drop down there. But, uh, that, that's again that if you descended all the way down, you'd be in Nice, and it's about 90 kilometers from the top of the Col de Bonnet to actual Nice on one road, mm. so uh. Doing it the other way, and then we have had people do it the other way. You know, that's some climb.
0: Mm. Oh, cool! Haven't done that that area of France yet. Um, and there is other other mountains in France uh, as well. You know, like you will have seen, I think, on stage. Nineteen or twenty, they sort of go into the Vosges area, which is it's uh, actually the area I used to be in back when I had a couple of years in France. Um, mm. not, not as big climbs, you know, generally second and first category climbs, but still, you know, they're still like fifteen k's long, so they're big mountains. I remember doing it the first time when I was over there when I was, you know, probably twenty-one, just thinking, "Holy crap, this just goes yeah. on forever!" Um, and you've got other areas in France in so the mountains as well, and the, the one other big, big, famous one that they do, uh spasmodically is the uh is Mont Ventoux uh yeah. and that's yeah how does that sort of how does Ventoux I, I know I completely detonated on that climb and didn't really enjoy the top path much but um how how does that sort of compare to say the Tourmaline stuff in terms of uh gradients and and length and so on it's 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 pretty iconic but it's um sort of out in the middle of, by itself.
1: Well, most people think it's part of the Alps. So when we do, a, when we're in the Alps, they say, oh, can we not do Vontu? But it is actually quite a few hours away from Vontu. It's, it's, um, probably a couple of hours from Nice. So you're right down south and then you pop back up. But, uh, there's three different, um, ascents of Vontu and, uh, near enough, two are very similar from, um, what's the, uh, where is it? Oh, I've forgotten the word. now. That's all right. The, yeah, there's, two, there's from two towns. It's very similar, um, and then from Salt, it's a, a sort of more gradual climb. But yeah, they are they are very similar to the Tourmalet and the, the big HC climbs. Um, the mainly the last six kilometer from uh, the Chalet Reynard. Uh, yeah. That's the that's the bit that hits you, yeah. um, and then you've got the wind as well. So you've got the, the sort of the elements just. If you're on a good day, I think the time you rode it was, was just was just before they cancelled the top of the stage where Froome was walking his bike. Yeah, so yeah. Um, you were there. I think only had three or four days before in the same wind, but yeah. you got you guys made it to the top. So. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think that was with that one, heavy. you do
0: you do probably need to allow give yourself a couple of days if you ever go down there, don't you? Because um, it can be it can be a, it can be closed or B it can be yeah. um, some pretty uh, pretty dicey weather. We were lucky we got it uh, on a great day. However, mm. my word of advice on that one is uh, we, we had like about a hundred kilometer approach to get there where we'd done uh, quite a bit of climbing. It was the first day of camp and there was some pretty excited people, including myself. And then we kind of raced up there and Ian mentioned Chalet Reynard. So that's when you kind of come out of the trees. I had to sit on the side of the road at Chalet Reynard <laughs> and regroup because I've been riding FTP for about flipping 30 minutes and we still had a long way to go so it was uh, yeah. it was not a lot of enjoyment in that second half but uh, the descent is is fantastic, it's a, it's a nice open descent, loved it um, the one other area I've sort of been to is uh, into Italy and uh, for those that watched the Giro it was a, it was a brilliant, brilliant battle and the, the final TT have had everybody on the, the edge of their seats um, it was a lot closer than what we saw in the Tour de France TT and um, um, but yeah, you're riding the Dolomites. So maybe um, tell us sort of where the Dolomites are in relation to you know Italian geography, and give us a bit of a bit of a pricey on the area.
1: Well, the Dolomites are north Italy, um, stretching up sort of around the back of the Alps. So, uh, and what what really surprised me when we did the Dolomites um, epic camp was that. It was all in German for the first few days, so there were German towns. Everything was in German, so that that surprised me quite a lot. Again, not my my history isn't great, but um, those down in um, Bormio, the uh, Stelvio, all of the big climbs uh, are sort of in the G- German speaking part of Italy. Um, for for the, the Dolomites, we sort of have two or three bases, uh, so we can go out riding. Um, three or four days of climbs, really. So um, I think you did the Col de Jao and, yeah. uh, and the Podoy. All of those way. are sort of... Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. they're all sort of grouped together. And then you head over and do the, the Stelvio and then you've got Motorola. Um, yeah, they're, they're very much on a different level of uh, elevation and steepness. Uh, you... you Basically, ten percent is the the new five percent. I always say when we go over yeah. there. Um. It you don't realize how steep they are, but you. It's funny you get used to it. So when it drops down to eight percent, it feels flat, and um, it's that's just I don't really get um, elevation sickness or anything like that. But it, the Dolomites are the there's the only place that I do sort of tend to get a headache at the night time because uh, you are very much over 2000 meters for the majority of the day of riding yeah
0: um
1: it's it's just a huge elevation uh, rise um you, you go up to the the top of the stelvio which is nearly 2800 meters but you're above that 2000 meters for probably the last 4 5 10k probably where in the alps they are more of a you you go straight up and back down um so you're not at those the elevations from you know, maybe half an hour or an hour, but Dolomites you're there for a long, long time.
0: Yeah, and I do. Look, it was a few years ago that we went to Italy. Um, I think I was just discussing with Ian. I think it was around 2010 or some sometime around about then. <laughs> so quite a few years ago. But I just yeah. remember the scenery just being absolutely ah. off the charts.
1: Yeah, it's it's the best for scenery. I mean, you ride and near enough you stop just looking up. Uh, yeah. The rock faces and the, the peaks are just unbelievable. And also the, the cafes there and the restaurants are a, another level above uh, even the Alps. Um, if it's cold and horrible, you walk into there um, on the on the Jiao and they've got the fire going. You've got cakes, you've got yeah. coffee, hot chocolate. Because you've got all the walkers and the the hikers up there as well, um, they, they're just used to. To uh, people coming in frozen and cold. Yeah. But on the other hand, you can be absolutely baking. Uh, that yeah. When that sun comes out, um, it's the Stelvio is um, summer skiing. So oh, <laughs> when you're yeah, going yeah. up there in a short sleeve jersey and shorts and you see some guy walking down with a snowboard. Yeah. Um, and that's another one. The Stelvio is just, you, you climb the last two kilometers with just the smell of sausages cooking you know, the, the, and bratwurst cooking. And you get to the top and it's a crowded town, so one of the highest mountains in, in Europe. And there's this huge crowded tourist town selling hot dogs and whatever. Uh, so it's it's very weird.
0: Yeah. And my memories of the Stelvio was, yeah, A, it was a long a lot, very long climb. And B, when you get towards the top, there's a series of switchbacks that you can kind of look over the edge and see people coming behind you. And I had Melina sort of bearing down on me and had to keep <laughs> the pressure on the top. But yeah, just I remember the snow, you know, being metres thick next year. It was uh, it was awesome. Yeah. And then, we, again, we were there in summer and we had to descend in the cars because uh, it started snowing when we got to the uh, top. Ah, yeah. Um, I remember but, uh, that. Yeah, so um, yeah, no, the the, the, and the other thing I would say about Italy is um, loved it quiet roads um, for a lot of the time, but on some of those big passes like the Stelvio, yeah. I do remember a lot of motorbikes. Um, which got it's a probably the busiest,
1: yeah, it's a, it's the busiest for motorbikes. Um, I would say, um, but it they're, they're such famous climbs, they've been on various famous TV shows, you know, Top Gear and things like this, so they promote that they are the best driving roads mm, but yeah
0: oh cool. and um, certain... just we've got just got a couple of minutes left to talk about Corsica because I've never been there oh, yeah. but I know you guys go to Corsica quite uh quite regularly you have a tour over there so tell us you know why you go over there and, and what it's like compared to say riding in in continental Europe Well,
1: Corsica um people at are... A lot of people in Europe will go to Mallorca for their early season training and things like this. And we had a a couple of groups in the past couple of years that have come across to us. And we do Corsica in May because after May, it gets too busy with tourists and it also gets too hot. So May is the perfect time. And they can't believe why it isn't more busy with cyclists. It's like the gem they've not discovered before. Um, The roads are very quiet um they're all very good t- um, surfaces and the climbs are actually so that the total climb for our Corsica tour is the same as our Alps and the Pyrenees <laughs> um and you'd never even think of that but even though the highest climb is around 1400 meters the uh called the um you are you are actually climbing it from sea level. So you you make the climb, you drop back down, you're near enough at sea level again, and you go back up another climb. And central Corsica is just, it looks like the Alps. It's a mixture between the Alps and the Dolomites. And you're going through national parks with, you know, rolling rivers coming down, um, proper switchback after switchback. It is just phenomenal. And then you'll hit the coast and you're, 200 meters above blue blue Lagoon type Mediterranean um, in red rock uh that the roads are so skinny that you' you know you go through rock overhangs and small tunnels um it's just something to look at constantly so uh we, we started off in Corsa because there was a tour there called the um the Tour de course and it's a permanent um they call them randonnées here where you have a card called a carne and at certain spots around the um the island or cafes hotels you get a stamp and once you've collected all your stamps you then get a medal um which you have to select uh, send off to a place in paris i think um and they they ratify, ratify it stamp it and then register you in a a special book to say that you've done that. And there's quite a lot of those in France and Corsica was one of those. And I'm I'm glad we did because we've been every year for the past sort of 15 years now.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Guys, I hope that's um, been enjoyable for you, just you know, hearing a little bit more about the areas of France, Italy and and Corsica. Um, if you want to go over there, um, check out Pyrenees Multisport.com. Um, whilst it's called Pyrenees Multisport, as you've heard, they do tours in different parts of France, Corsica, Italy, and so on. Um, and can also do custom sort of things uh for tri-groups and so on, um, and really just tailor anything. So if you've got the the, the need to go over there either by yourself or with a group, go and check them out and uh we're using them next year, for example, you know, we're doing a um, sort of camp into Alp Duez camp and these guys are coming over and supporting that. So they've got plenty of experience. So I love your work, Ian. Thanks so much for your time.
1: That's great. No, thanks for having me on.
0: Okay guys, time for wanger of the week. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Ian. I certainly enjoyed doing it, but I'm a bit of a cycling tragic when it comes to riding in Europe. It's just absolutely brilliant. So if you ever get the chance to go on a camp, whether it be an epic camp, whether it be a a camp with Pyrenees Multisport or somebody else, uh, go and check them out because um, they know the roads and it's really easy to... Not go on the best routes. Um, when you're going with a tour group, you, you know you know you're going to find uh, some nice quiet roads and go over some of the classic climbs and avoid hopefully getting lost. Anyway, wanger of the week went on to our Strava page. If you haven't, don't know what wanger of the week is, uh, you just need to join up to our Strava group and if you finish in the top 100, you get a chance of being drawn out in our. Weekly draw. Uh, you need to uh, swim, bike, and run. So I put in random.org, and the first one came out number four, who we just went cycling, so I didn't do that. And the next one out is number 18. Oh, it's Christchurch Lycal. Like cool. Julia Spark. She did 18 hours and 38 minutes of training from 15 activities. She swam 2 hours 33, rode 7 hours 38, and ran 8 hours and 26 minutes. And we've got to remember, we're in the middle of winter, so I assume Julie is still in Christchurch, I'm just going to check that out, um, but we've had some really shitty weather, um, we had some good weather as well, uh, but she looks like last week she's been doing a bit of Zwifting, quite a bit of Zwifting, a little bit of running, she lives just outside Christchurch in, in North Canterbury. Um, Julia went to Hawaii, I think it was last year I think it was, it was either last year or the year before, I'm pretty sure it was last year. Um, she's an absolute beast on the bike, loves riding her bike. Uh, she also came on, come on a, a couple of my little my mini camps, she came and when we did our ride from Christchurch to uh, across to the west coast, uh, she stomped it out on day one, uh, got over there in one piece, so it was 255 k's I think it was, with a huge amount of climbing, unfortunately When the turnaround came, Julia was nowhere to be seen and she had a rough night. She got sick leading into it and uh, she was not a happy camper and spent most of the night unfortunately uh, not well. Um, but luckily her son who was also on the camp, Joe Spar- uh, Joe Drury, he, uh, he managed to come over and did both, both ways. So uh, Julia had a fantastic week. She did a great run um, at the weekend going over sort of the Mount Herbert area. She must be getting ready to do a big run we have down here in Christchurch called the Crater Rim. We run uh, along the top of uh, sort of the blown out volcano that sort of encompasses the hills around Christchurch. So hopefully she's getting ready for that. Did uh, three hours, 52 running. Nice work. Uh, So Julia Spark was our wanger of the week. She smoked it last week. Well done. And hopefully you're looking forward to a good summer of racing. Uh, In terms of what else I've got for today's show, bugger all is the answer. Um, The quiz question. Uh, I had to a little think about this before because 3rd place was quite sought after in the Tour de France so the question was who finished 3rd place in this year's Tour de France it did change around quite a bit because you had the front two, you had uh, Pogachar and Wingergard, who were just absolutely annihilating everybody, annihilating everybody. And then obviously we saw Jonas Wingergard sort of pull away convincingly um, on one stage in particular. But the battle for third was uh, was pretty full on, and it changed hands a number of times. You had uh, Jay Vine, who was uh, sitting in—he was a yellow jersey for a while, but then he was sitting in third for a bit. He had a bit of a crash and sort of tumbled down a little bit. Then you had the rider from Ineos. He ended up, I think it was Rodriguez, he ended up getting into third at one stage. This is all off memory so I hope maybe got it a little bit wrong. Um, but then you also had um, one of the Yates boys and both the Yates boys actually were sort of in the gunning for third place. And which one was it that, that uh, finished in third at the end? I better go check this to make sure I get the right one. Latour.fr uh, finished in third place, where they must have the overall rankings here somewhere, otherwise I'm just going to have to go and check it out, no it was Adam Yates, Uh, he took it out, ended up being ten minutes behind, Uh, he was in third place uh, and his brother was in fourth place. Simon Yates. They ride for different teams. Adam Yates rides for the UAE team which is the same one as Tadej Bogachar. So he was doing a lot of domestic duties not always thinking about himself. Uh, Simon Yates was in fourth and the other fellow I mentioned, Rodriguez, was in fifth. Jai Hindley dropped down to seventh place. So well done if you got that right. Um, Adam Yates was third place in this year's Tour de France. What else have we got today? It's always a bit different when you're doing it by yourself. Uh, today's swim set I did go for a swim this morning, um, and I forgot my little piece of paper that had today's swim set, but this is what we were going to do, and probably what we'll do next week. Uh, so we started off with an 800 metre swim continuous, it was 800 building the pace, so... For, each 200 trying to pick it up a little bit, but we had a little twist, we're doing 150 meters freestyle, 25 backstroke, 25 breaststroke, Um, and each 200 just picking up the pace a little bit. So 800 up, And then the main set will be 400 meters steady, two times 200 moderately hard, and four by 100 hard. With the hundreds, taking around 15 seconds rest, about the same for the 200s, and then repeating that again. So it's 400 steady, two by 200 moderately hard, Four by one hundred hard, around um, about sort of fifteen to twenty seconds rest, um, a little bit more between the between doing the sets. You do that whole thing twice through, and then finish off with two twenty fives underwater, um, trying to make the whole length underwater, and then finish off with two hundred meters warm down. So that was the swim from that was supposed to be this morning, but we'll, we'll be doing next week. So if anybody who swims with me, that's what's in store if you want to turn up next Tuesday. Uh, that's pretty much this week's show. Um, totally different experience for me, having to do this by myself, you have to be quite organised, you haven't got any time to think, you know, often I'm sort of playing around with stuff while Bevan's uh, rambling away and getting ready for, for the next part, hopefully it's come off okay, don't think it's going to be happening again anytime soon, but I wanted to make sure that uh, Bevan, you know, he's having a holiday, he gets a decent holiday, he's had a bit of a rough run, and he often helps me out when I've got camps and stuff in terms of filling in with different interviews and so on. Um, in terms of what I've been up to, Bevan always says, what's your goss? Well the last Week's been pretty grim. I don't reckon I've been sick for about three or four years. When I got COVID, it was uh, a very, very mild version. And whilst I had, you know, about a week or so off training, um, that was really precautionary. But yeah, I got sick uh, about a week and a bit ago and uh, didn't, yeah, took a bit of time off work, which is like a, a, a n- never occurs for me uh, and still suffering. So over the worst of it, but on the comeback, back doing some exercise. But it was six days of nothing, uh, and it'll probably be a good week uh, of doing light exercise because it's on my chest. I uh, don't want to risk risk anything, haven't got anything particular coming up anyway, so just going to keep it nice and chilled. And hopefully, this time next Tuesday, when we're recording the next show, um, I'll be back in the game. Bevan will be back on deck. Hopefully, his uh, ailments and his body's uh, improved and his. Um, his treatment that he got on his back is going to be be okay. And yeah, so we'll see you guys next week. I really hope that we have a fantastic US Open this weekend. Encourage you guys to get involved. Get watching it. Comment. Just be, be part of it, spread the world, make sure other people know about it as well, um, because we need these races to be our majors and for for media to hopefully stand up and, and pick up on it um, because the fields are great, the money's great, and we need to make sure that we all, as triathlon community, get in behind. Stop bitching and moaning about things that could be better um, because this product is, is you know, the best we've seen for, for a long, long time. So, to the patrons who support this show, thank you very much. A couple of them Paul Swindler Tuck, Michael uh, Hot Rod, Super Hot Rod Parrot, and Nadine Flower Power Voice. Um, if you want to get the show emailed to you, um, go on to imtalk.me. If you want to send in any content, um, do so. Uh, that Bevan normally does this section, what is it I am talk podcast at gmail dot com uh, if you want to come on any camps, I've still got plenty of space on my Kona camp for next year, but I am trying to book that up. It's such a cool camp. Um, you get to do the Kona 70.3 or the Hawaii 70.3 as well as a tour around the whole island with a cool bunch of people. Coaching, CoachJohnNewson.com. Bevan's stuff is BevanJamesIles.com. And do send through any content you'd love to get out there. I do like to, it'd be great if we could have a few more age groupers of the week and any content that you guys want to share with the Triathlon community. So that's pretty much it for this week. Uh, a little bit different, but a show nonetheless. We've only missed one uh, and that was when Bevan almost died uh, and ended up in hospital. So 16 years still going strong. I'm Russ. I'm in don't. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha.